0: This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in. I am a litigation consultant. I study self-defense cases. I've had the joy of working on a number of self-defense cases on the behalf of defenders, I've had a chance to work a couple of times with the esteemed Don West. Don West is National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and a uh, veteran criminal defense attorney with lots of experience in self defense cases. And we're joined often on this podcast by our friend Steve Moses. Steve Moses is a well regarded firearms instructor. He's a CCW Safe uh, contributor. He's uh, got a great mind for tactics. He's uh, a student and a trainer, uh, and we love having his insight. Uh, if you listen to our last podcast, you know that we were talking about the Alan Womack shooting, and we looked in depth in this uh, completely justified shooting. And Steve Moses gave us some insights on the tactical considerations, uh, the uh, lessons, tactical lessons that we were able to learn. Uh, from the events as we know them. But this week we're going to dive in uh, primarily with Don West on the legal considerations of the Womack shooting. And one reason I like to talk about this case, one reason we're revisiting it as one of our touchstone cases is because this is a case where legally the defender did everything right. All the boxes that we're going to talk about that are part of a justifiable use of force case are checked in this particular case. Uh, And uh, that said, there's still interesting lessons to be learned. So before we get into the conversation, let me go ahead and give you the details on this case. Uh, We don't know. Who the defender was in this case because the prosecutor's office didn't release his name publicly until they had completed a three and a half week uh, investigation into the shooting and declared him uh, exonerated. They declared the shooting completely justified Uh, and they didn't release the name of an innocent person, which is respectable we do know that the decedent was alan womack and womack was uh, an accomplished athlete he had played basketball in high school and in college he didn't seem to have any uh serious criminal history he was a licensed concealed carrier but he went to a uh, la fitness which had a basketball gym in the evening in uh, a place a little north of philadelphia Pennsylvania, and there he was playing against the defender in this case, who uh, perhaps had a propensity for traveling fouls. Womack called him out on these fouls. They got into a bit of an argument. I think that argument got a little bit more heated throughout the game. At some point, Womack yelled at him, threatened to shoot him in the head, at which point our defender decided he'd had enough. So he packed up his stuff, got his gym bag and decided to leave the premises. Well, Womack had apparently uh, headed him off, was waiting outside of the LA Fitness, and when the Defender left, Womack began to follow him out into the parking lot. According to witnesses, he was shouting obscenities, he was making threats, he closed on the Defender, and then in the final moments pulled out a uh, handgun, He racked a round into the chamber and our defender, who was also a licensed concealed carrier, had his Glock loaded and ready in his gym bag. He pulled it out, fired the first shot right into the chest of Womack. As Womack fell to the ground, he fired two wild shots that hit some cars nearby, but didn't hurt anybody. Uh, By all accounts, completely justifiable use of force but uh, stick around with us Don West is going to walk us through point by point why it was justified and we'll learn a few good lessons and then uh, before the time's up we'll hear a final word from Steve Moses on uh, some additional tactical considerations. Alright, here we go thanks for listening, here's my conversation about the Womack shooting with Don West and Steve Moses Don, what I'd like to do is—is is we've looked at this from a tactical point of view with a lot of Steve's input. I want to look at this from a legal point of view, uh, and we've broken out these foundational elements of self-defense that we find in one form or another in the laws of practically every jurisdiction in the United States, right? And and the core yes. of the self-defense statutes. And they're all phrased a little bit differently, but it's essentially that the defender needs to have a reasonable belief or a reasonable fear that they're in imminent danger. And as you have told me before, imminent means right now of an attack that is severe enough to cause great bodily harm or death. Does that sound about right? Yes, that's exactly right. Right, and so, so often in these cases, when we deal with the defender's dilemma, we've got somebody who is, you know, imminent, and and obviously aggressive. For so there's some fear there, but we don't know if they're armed or they're not armed. We deal a lot with armed defenders shooting unarmed attackers, and we also often have a lot of controversy over you know, how reasonable was the fear. And, and we have sometimes attackers firing blindly into their garages at what they think is an intruder uh, in a, a fear that's unsubstantiated. But, I mean, I think we can look at this case. I want to tick through these three elements here. So, so, first of all, we're looking at, let's talk about imminence, right? And imminence is tough because imminence is subjective in a way where i know a lot of the defenders we look at as tension rises sometimes they'll that that fear will trigger early and they fire too soon so so tell me legally about imminence and how you seeing that playing out in this particular case you're right that
1: imminence is pretty hard to specify. It's, I would say, impossible to specify in terms of seconds or minutes on a clock because it's dynamic within the scenario that is unfolding. Certainly, its imminence means sooner than a few minutes. It probably is within a few seconds And it might be within a second or two or a fraction of a second. Basically, imminence in the context of this means that the violence is about to happen, that it's on its way and that you're lucky if you have enough time to respond to it. In this context, we have Womack having made a prior threat of violence. That I suspect the defender was sort of chewing on whether he really meant it or whether it was trash talk on a basketball court with a little extra, you know, spice. Mm-hmm. But then when he's he confronts him outside in the parking lot, he would have more reason to be vigilant about that. So then we we get the two of them within close proximity. If Womack is clearly unarmed the physical distance becomes really important Uh, if somebody is 50 yards away and they don't have a weapon they can't actually hurt you with their hands at that point if somebody's 50 yards away as Steve talked about uh, they still can shoot and kill you with a gun so the idea of imminence and jeopardy sort of all connect in there together but the facts that we have is that uh womack clearly had a gun which meant he absolutely had lethal force in his hand uh using a gun is per se in every jurisdiction that i know of lethal force and that he had the uh ability and opportunity to use it all he had to do basically was pull the trigger from once once it was displayed yeah So I I think from an imminent standpoint, there's no question that the defender saw Womack with the gun in a clearly agitated state, having racked the gun to ready it for fire. That's clearly, in my mind, imminence.
0: Sure. And if we're going to play around with details, like we often will on this, if the defender had chosen to shoot a few moments earlier, let's imagine a scenario where uh, Womack is let's say 15 yards behind him yelling out threats and obscenities but has his hands uh, open clearly there's no gun there if Womack shoots at this point I mean he's early Womack or if the defender shoots at this point Womack doesn't have the imminent ability to do him harm
1: Well that's an interesting uh, analysis because the imminence is an issue, he's too far away without a weapon to immediately be able to affect whatever harm it is that he intended. And then you also have the question of whether the harm that he may very well have intended was going to rise to the level of the ability to cause great bodily harm or death. And then you start looking at how big and tough is womack how big and tough is the defender could they engage physically uh, without the defender having a reasonable belief that womack would and intended to cause him great bodily harm or death yeah. you know is he at that point bringing a gun to a fist fight
0: well so, let's let, let's talk about that reasonable belief i think it's interesting cuz so i want to talk about these three key element elements the the reasonable belief or fear of imminent severe severity great bodily harm or death right and so now um so now we bring in this this reasonable belief we've talked about that a little bit uh, in our prior conversations with steve but the guy had threatened him at the basketball court he said i want to shoot you in the head there's a lot of macho bluster that might be associated with that but now that he's following him in the parking lot uh, the closer he gets the more he yells the more and the more distance that the defender tries to put between himself and this perceived attacker uh, moment by moment his fear that this guy really intends him harm is skyrocketing from my point of view do you read it that way as well agreed yes i do yes i agree and so i and, and then to show how these three elements are so closely interlaced we can't really talk with about one without the other. Um, Then we throw on the severity, and uh, the Defender's got a little bit of a problem here working with severity until the pistol comes out. And then at that point, uh, all these things are locked in. The reasonable belief is there. It's been confirmed because the gun's out. He's announced his intention. He's... I don't know how far away he was at this point, but it, from the reading that we've done, it sounds like he was pretty close. Imminence isn't a question anymore, and now severity is not a question. All three of these boxes are are mm-hmm. checked for the defender.
1: We know when Steve was talking about tactically what, what can you do, um, if in that scenario Womack is very aggressive and approaching, and not obeying voice commands to stand back but the defender doesn't see a weapon then he has to sort of figure out what's going to happen next how what intent does Womack have and what degree of harm is he intending to inflict and that's the opportunity as as Steve talked about you you buy as much time as possible until the weapon comes out um, until Womack's weapon comes out and then you know that all of that is gone right there he can shoot you um, up to a number of yards away that he is an immediate threat of imminent deadly force and your, your tactics have to change dramatically and then you ha- you clearly have the right to use uh, deadly force in response up until that point you're still kind of assessing And the more distance you have to assess the intent of the aggressor uh, up until the point where you believe that you need to display your firearm to raise that um, defensive force up a notch. Sure. And also, of course, to get ready, you know, to be able to deploy your own use of deadly force if if you need it. Uh, That's why we talked about how dicey how dicey that was. I um, Pennsylvania is a stand-your-ground state. This happened north of Philadelphia, King of Prussia area. Right. So the Defender clearly had no legal duty to retreat prior to the use of deadly force if he was otherwise legally justified in using deadly force. Stand-your-ground eliminates the duty to retreat. Uh, on the other hand, by moving around, by even creating a little bit of distance to figure out what Womack, in fact, intended, gives him a great opportunity perhaps to avoid using deadly force, but also in a much better position to effectively use the degree of force that he thinks is necessary once he's figured out what Womack intends. So as soon as the gun comes out, of course, that's it's all over at that point, and I think Steve would probably, I'd like to hear his thoughts, but I think Steve would probably agree that there would be a point in time where Womack, even without uh, a a weapon in Womack's hand, that based upon how this thing unfolded, that the defender may very well have been justified in displaying, showing his his firearm.
2: Absolutely. I completely concur. There are... It's, it's scary when uh, people understand how many people are walking around right now with the, uh, the martial arts skills to basically uh, kill another person with their bare hands. And I know that sounds like something you know, 1970s kung fu vintage stuff. But there are a lot of people that do uh, mixed martial arts. Uh, people that do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and other grappling-related arts. Uh, There's people that have very good striking skills that study either American boxing or uh, Muay Thai boxing. And a a person that's literally smaller and physically uh, weaker than you, uh, in many instances, has the ability to kill you with their bare hands. And right. so this really creates a problem when people go, well, you know, they look like they were evenly matched. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, also, when those two guys are out there playing pickup basketball, uh, in many instances, uh, and of course it's been a long time since I've done that, but you could tell pretty quick when there were other people on that team that were physically stronger and quicker and uh, just just basically much more of a beast than you were, in that in a straight on fight, you would be at a great disadvantage and if that person 's intent was to you know seriously injure you or kill you, uh, you were at risk so this really creates a problem for you know concealed carriers is how do I handle those situations because I hear so many times how you know, things go bad because of the classic Well, he shot an armed armed man. Well, you can do additional things. Uh, Much of it's just in terms of knowledge. You know, everything that we've discussed weighs in. And if people understand that, uh, then they can justify, in my opinion, bringing a handgun into play sooner in the game. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they may not be charged, but I think that... If a person was able to, okay, clearly articulate why they feared for that person's, uh, what they knew about, you know, uh, defensive combatives, uh, how they knew that another person could indeed harm them, they had asked that person to stay away, they'd ordered them to stay away, and that person continued to encroach upon them, then you know, going to defensive display probably is not a bad idea. I mean, if it's going to be that or probably a very good chance that I'm going to get injured or killed, uh, that's what I'm going to do. And by the same token, persons that want to kind of dive on to this a little bit deeper, uh, there's people that teach, okay, how to defend yourself against a person that launches an attack, uh, a physical attack long enough to protect your head and not get knocked down and bring a gun into play. There's people that teach in that same situation how to actually bring that gun in and shoot it from a retention position. So that's one of the things that I've known how to do that, and I still work on those skills, and I still train. uh, I teach it. I train from unders is, okay, having that ability to know that I've got a little bit more margin for error here because if that person does include, you know, get up here, two arms length away, that if I do everything correct, even at, at, at my age with, you know, the, the surgeries and everything I had, I've got a real high possibility that I can survive that initial onslaught and get a gun into play. And so having that option, I, I really think it's just, you know, it's, it's, You know, I don't want to say I'm cocky. I just believe that I have some skills and tactics in place that gives me a little bit more margin for error. And I really would encourage, you know, uh, concealed carriers to look at that same thing because we really don't have a say if that person wants to attack us or if they want to attack us and they don't give all of the advanced warnings that Womack did just having that ability to, okay, survive and be able to get to something else, or maybe get myself into a position where I can put this person in a position where they can't harm me until somebody else comes up and pulls the guy off. Uh, I, I think that's a, that's a great skill and a great uh, thing to know.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, what I, what I hear you saying is that the more training you have, the more yes. abilities you Artists. have, the more options you have, the more time you have to make decisions. Yes. And Don, well, yes. well, Steve was talking about that whole thing, about being the kind of concealed character who could actually take a punch and still know that you can get uh, defend yourself with your firearm, I couldn't help but the think about our time on Zimmerman, and not that he was highly trained or anything, but I think in the end when that jury heard strong evidence to convince them that George Zimmerman was on his back with his attacker on top of him taking a serious beating for upwards of ninety seconds before he got a hold of his pistol and fired a single shot. That made that changed a lot of people's minds about what the facts were of that case and the fact that he had actually he did he didn't shoot him five feet away because he's afraid of him, right? He shot him actually after he was already uh, clearly the victim of physical violence.
1: Yeah, and in that case, we had photographic evidence and uh, medical testimony that Zimmerman was injured in the face, it looked like his uh, nose was broken, he was bleeding in the face, clearly as a result of being struck in the face he also had uh, several knots on the back of his head a couple of cuts on the back of his head that was consistent with his statement that his head was being smashed into the sidewalk after he had been knocked to the ground and we know from witnesses in close proximity and we even know from the recorded 911 call that captured a lot of this stuff going on that those injuries would have to have been sustained prior to the shot being fired and could not have been self-inflicted as wild theorists uh, proposed at some point. So in that instance, he was beaten pretty badly for, like you said, a, a minute or so and was in an extremely vulnerable position on his back. All of that was corroborated by eyewitnesses as well as physical evidence that showed grass stains and grass clippings on Zimmerman's back. His jacket was wet. Um, There was a witness that saw him in that position. So as as much as people wanted not to believe what George Zimmerman said actually happened, all of the physical forensic evidence uh, corroborated that. And, uh, yeah, the, the jury, I think, was left with really only one plausible scenario as to how that uh, happened. Uh, I, can, can we spin back to the Womack case? Well, yeah, we're going back there for sure.
0: Yeah,
1: I wanted to put another scenario in here. You talk about the defender's uh, dilemma, and Steve has talked about how anyone who's skilled can pose a physical threat, Uh, with superior skills and strength and we certainly know from the Zimmerman case and others that if someone gets a tactical advantage, a physical advantage, in that case it was that Zimmerman was knocked down to the ground and Trayvon Martin was able to dominate him physically by literally straddling him and was in a superior position to, to hit him. Uh, At that point we that was corroborated in the case because of grass stains on Trayvon Martin's knees and such that really all of that And an eyewitness uh, Yes, yeah, so but but to the parking lot situation with Womack uh, imagine this scenario As how difficult it would be to sort out not just at the moment it was unfolding but then how difficult it would be to sort out after the fact for those that were trying to piece it together set the whole thing up that uh womack and uh the defender are involved in this uh basketball game there's threats that womack is out in the parking lot that when the defender comes out he's there to confront him the the threats the talking starts but that Womack doesn't have a gun in his hand. Let's put the gun in a holster on his waistband or in his pocket, but let's not put it in his hand so the defender doesn't see a gun, doesn't see a weapon of any sort. So it's concealed. Uh, Womack continues to approach him, uh, closing the distance, not at the point where they're within an arm's length of each other, but the defender begins to get more and more concerned that he will be physically attacked and uh, Womack's not backing away but it hasn't escalated to the point of just you know trash talk and threats and um, you know I ought to kick your ass the way you treated me in there and da 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 the defender gets concerned enough as this thing plays out that he feels justified in displaying the weapon that he pulls the gun how he holds it would depend on probably his training but let's say he pulls the gun and it's clearly now visible to Womack so Womack at that point reasonably believes I think that he's just now been threatened with a gun so what's his response does he throw up his hands and say no man I don't want this and walks away or does he respond in the same way that the defender did, he draws his gun and feels that he has the right to shoot what otherwise was the defender. So now Womack shoots the defender who's there holding a gun. Um, You could pick, pick who dies or who doesn't die, but somebody dies and now the Police, uh, witnesses try to sort it out, and the prosecutor has to make a decision uh, in that case. So, those are the kinds of nightmare situations for absolutely everybody. Yeah. And, well, and uh, let me
0: springboard off that, Don, because when we talk about reasonable fear, imminence, and severity as these core foundational elements for self defense, we have these other uh, preamble elements that have a bearing on that case. And uh, I think you'll agree with me. One is, in most places, you need to be in a place you're legally allowed to be when you make a self-defense claim. Uh, you need to not be breaking the law. Uh, you need to not be the first aggressor. And in some places, there is a legal duty to retreat. But as you mentioned, in this particular case in Pennsylvania, there's not... A legal duty to retreat, but I want to read to you what the prosecutor said at this press conference when he decided not to press charges. He says, At no point in the encounter did the evidence reveal that the shooter provoked the decedent or raise the level of force. If he had, the self defense claim would be invalidated. In fact, the shooter did just the opposite, trying several times to de escalate the situation. For these reasons, I conclude that this was a justifiable shooting and therefore no criminal charges are warranted against the shooter. But um, in your scenario there, uh, I think things become ambiguous, but I think Womax uh, destroyed his potential claim if he were to have fired at the defender who drew first in your, in your uh, hypothetical situation there because... I think he demonstrated himself to be the first aggressor. He he had issued the threat. He pursued him into the parking lot. And uh, at that point, he's got a mark against him. And clearly in this case, um, the way it did unfold, the prosecutor articulated that that was a point in the defender's category.
1: I think the threat inside the gym becomes really, really important there because you aren't, you aren't the initial aggressor just because you are angry or just because you argue with somebody. When it escalates to the point of a threat, uh, and the threat is a serious one and to be taken seriously, then you've taken an argument and now put it in the context of committing a crime. And certainly the initial aggressor who commits the crime of making a threat, uh, sure, becomes legally the first uh, initial aggressor and at a clear disadvantage when it comes to
0: uh, claiming self-defense. Sure. I think we both agree, all of us can agree, that uh, the defender here was legally allowed to be where he was. He wasn't breaking the law there. I know from reports that they were both... uh, licensed and were legally carrying their weapons. But I want to get to this last thought of duty to retreat because something really caught my attention in this prosecutor's um, notes here. And I don't think he's necessarily legally correct, but when he says uh, if the shooter had provoked the accedent or raised the level of force his claim would have been invalidated uh is that true I- i'm not sure it is and you know he's giving him credit for de-escalating and leaving but also when we talk about uh stand your ground as opposed to duty to retreat i uh, i think even in a stand your ground state when you do make the effort to retreat, even though it's not legally required of you, clearly that makes an impact on the, the prosecutor.
1: You know, the, the comment that at no point did the evidence reveal the shooter provoked the decedent. Um, the provocation here, the prosecutor, I, I'm going to assume meant what he said in a legal context. And provocation is uh, a way to lose your right to self-defense. If you provoke the incident, and in many jurisdictions, provocation basically means that you are baiting the person, that you are trying to get them to throw the first punch or to become the legal aggressor uh, so that you then believe you have the right to defend yourself against it so basically you're setting the person up to give you the chance to use uh, some kind of force and i'm going to assume for the moment the prosecutor meant that uh, the shooter or the defender in this case did nothing to set that up nothing to create the circumstance whereby he would be legally or justified in his own mind even to use the the deadly force. Sure, he wasn't he like, "Hey, hey, why I don't you come out to my car? Could... We'll
0: talk about this." That'd be a different scenario.
1: Yeah, well, I dare you, man. You know, I'm gonna, I, I could, you know, I could kick your butt all day long. I dare you. It's almost. I'm dating myself. Steve will appreciate this <laughs> reference. Do you remember Robert Conrad? Yes. Back in the days of Duracell batteries, he would put one on his shoulder mm-hmm. and dare someone to knock it off. Yes. <laughs> that's uh, that's kind of a, a a mild form of provocation where you're sort of a you're, you're trying to sure. egg on somebody sure, to attack but this, you. And
2: actually, people people will
1: dare you to shoot them.
2: That is. If someone is encroaching upon you and they don't believe that you're willing to actually use that gun, they will actually say, go ahead and shoot me. And I believe that actually even took place in that Alexander Weiss case, if I'm not mistaken.
0: That's, yeah, exactly. It sure did. The, the, the guy didn't believe Weiss had it in him and uh, paid for it in, a, in his own death. So what I hear you saying, Don, is that it's not a um, it, it, the defender here didn't intentionally lure Womack out there with the intention of shooting him, and and there is no evidence he did that, and and, and whether or not um, the defender maybe said something mean or engaged in a conversation with him in the gym, that's not that's not what we're talking about. There, we're talking about the any evidence that he actually mm-hmm. intended to lure him out to the car mm-hmm. for the purposes of shooting him didn't exist.
1: Yeah, and I'm going to assume the prosecutor um, made that comment to exclude that as a possibility, but I think it also meant, in the more common sense, that the defender was not an aggressor, uh, didn't start it, even if it hadn't risen to the level of provocation. The way he described that it unfolded is Womack made the threat inside, Womack waited for him, Womack approached him, womack was the first to display a weapon womack racked the gun to make it clear that he was capable and ready to use it and that at no point during any of that uh, did the shooter uh, become the aggressor or uh, a provocateur and that he was always defending himself as this thing escalated and he did nothing along the way to escalate it himself. He was always a defender uh, from the beginning and uh, until the end, till he believed that he had no choice but to use deadly force in response to a deadly force threat and that the prosecutor ultimately agreed. We know, as we mentioned, under Pennsylvania law, he was never legally obligated to retreat in the face of the threat prior to using deadly force. We have no reason to think that he really could have anyway uh, based upon Womack getting the gun out and getting it ready to fire when they were just a few feet apart uh, anyway. So I I doubt if that consideration ever entered in to the prosecutor's decision whether the shooter acted reasonably because he concluded he did under all of those circumstances including uh, Pennsylvania's Stand Your Ground. Yeah
0: so this is one of those cases that you know what Don, it, i think and, and you told me recently that the in the end most of the cases you get called about at ccw safe where there was a homicide someone was killed uh, aren't charged aren't prosecuted because the defenders did pretty much everything right was I? am i mistaken in that Well, we have uh, a
1: terrific membership at CCW SAVE. They seem to be, for the most part, reasonable uh, gun owners that pride themselves in knowing what they're doing, and that means they're getting additional training beyond, as Steve pointed out, what it takes just to get the permit. We've had very positive comments from uh, about these discussions. People have thought about some of these scenarios and reflected on how they might act if they were ever in a similar situation and we've had a couple that in fact have been and they've responded legally and appropriately and many times being able to successfully avoid the confrontation altogether Uh, of course we've also had cases we have a big membership we have uh, uh a number uh, we've had a number of cases where lethal the def- force was used and where after a thorough investigation uh, law enforcement made no arrest and the uh, prosecutors um, charged no crime right. and that's I think because uh, like the prosecutor in the Womack case um, after looking at it and it could take weeks or months don't think that it's over the next day even if you haven't been arrested yeah Yeah, and this is about as straightforward as it gets and I think there are also some witnesses to corroborate all of all of the important facts that could have uh, changed the assessment but we've had cases they've taken weeks or sometimes months where there was a formal decision not to file charges I, I can also tell you that in my experience as a criminal defense lawyer, having been involved in representing a number of individuals in deadly self defense situations, um, that the decision not to charge is sometimes not an announced or formal decision. You know, the statute of limitations for murder cases in most places is forever that there is no statute of limitations and as a result the prosecutors don't have to in many cases formally announce that they're not going to file charges they simply don't file them and the case gets older and older and older and one assumes as time passes the chances of getting charged lessen and I think that's true but there's always the circumstance or the possibility that additional evidence Uh, could be determined, Uh, additional scientific techniques developed that would allow evidence to be analyzed that wasn't. Or, uh, as sometimes can happen, people come and go in these offices, prosecutors are elected and rejected, and all of a sudden the file lands on somebody else's desk who takes a, a new look at it.
0: So in this case, the guy, uh, there's a gift Which, to the defender here that the prosecutor made the effort to announce publicly that he would not be filing charges, that that he made a case that he was that's right. justified. Yes. Yeah, well, and I guess... Yeah,
1: he, he must have been satisf- satisfied. There was no gap in the evidence. There was no further investigation that was likely to change anything. So you're right. He, yeah. he did the defender a service. And... And probably the the system, a, a service as well. There's now some finality Yeah, to and it. so
0: I brought that all up because we target on high-profile cases that have lessons for concealed carriers to learn. There are often cases that go tragically wrong and result with a defender serving some jail time for a mistake or two that they made during the interaction. But uh, it's actually hard to find cases in the news where the defender did everything right because they don't generally make headlines and i think they're actually a lot more common than we might not know for so for any listener out there who thinks that that it's always this doom and gloom and that no matter how responsible and thoughtful a concealed carrier or home defender you are that you're destined to you know, face a, a horrible prosecution for it. It's 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 not the truth. We often see justice unfold. This case is an example of it. But then, um, just to underscore one of your points, to Don, is that even in the most cut and dried cases, there, if the police are going to do their job, there's still going to be a potentially multi-week or multi-month investigation. And uh, they're not always wrapped up as tidily as the Womack shooting.
1: We started this discussion some time ago talking about how at this moment in our history, resources are strained. That police and first responders are attending to other emergencies. That... Sometimes the resources are directed for other purposes. We have sick people in the country that need attention. We have social unrest that needs attention and huge amounts of resources to investigate. And that some of the things that might normally be done, routinely done quickly, um, Take longer. may not be done for weeks or months as a result of it. Sure, sure. You just have to get in line sometimes, and uh, no matter how legal the Self-Defense Act is ultimately turned out to be, that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be a quick decision.
0: Steve, I'm I'm curious. This is a a case where legally we can show that the defender checked all the boxes uh, to justify his actions and avoid prosecution. Tactically, are there any... uh, any lessons from the Womack shooting that you think our members could benefit from?
2: Well, first of all, I'd like to completely agree with you that he basically checked all those boxes properly. And basically, every decision that he made, just based upon what I have read and heard from you and Don, is I, I think he made multiple sound uh, judgments. Uh, tactically, as i think about this uh i was just you know kind of pondering the fact that womack walked up on him pulled a gun and then racked it and the fact that this probably gave the defender an advantage in terms of uh giving him you know time to respond the, the thing that kind of bothered me about that a little bit was that he didn't have that gun on his person and he had to reach into that backpack. Well everything just kind of, you know, lined up and it worked out for him. Uh, for others, that may not be the case, uh, they may not have the opportunity of having that additional time to access a handgun because the assailant came up and had a handgun and was moving in on them. Uh, to that end, uh, my recommendation would be to move. That is, move laterally as quickly as you can until you can get your hand on the gun. And if you have no gun, just keep moving. But uh, one, that is a typically, uh, it surprises the attacker. And secondly, you become a much harder target to hit. And so that can buy you a little bit of time to get your hand on that gun. Uh, assuming that you're still in the same precarious position, you can then plant your feet and engage. That's actually a, a defensive tactic that we teach in some of our classes.
0: Yeah. So so only criticism for this guy, or, or the primary criticism for this guy, is that he wasn't, uh, as a concealed carrier, as ready he as prepared. he could have been and should have been. That's to, right. And he's lucky that he uh, managed to scratch his way out of yes. this
2: one. Yes. He, he, he wasn't ready. He had to actually make himself ready for that position. And I'm pretty much sure that probably ate up anywhere between uh, one and three seconds before he was able to, you know, if, if that's true, that he didn't already have his, he may have already had his hand on the gun for all I know. If he had his hand on the gun, well then basically everything I said is like other than, I don't think that's the safest way to do it. But he was in a position to where he could have engaged and that's very possibly what happened. But if he did not, uh, I would definitely want to have myself in a position where I'm ready to you know fight for my life at just a moment's notice.
0: all right guys that's the podcast for today thanks again for listening through to the end we've got a bunch more interesting conversations in the pipeline that we'll be bringing to you soon but until then be smart stay safe take care